John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1428.LK0817, certificate number 25923, Harry Dexter White. He thinks it's improper for me to give the record, the Communist Front record, of the man whom he wanted to foist upon this committee, but it doesn't pain him at all. There's no pain in his chest about the attempt to destroy the reputation and the take the jobs away from the young men who are working in my committee. If you've ever been to the presidential range of New Hampshire, which is not a it's not a gun range where you shoot at different you shoot at assassinated presidents. Like all the targets are like James Garfield. Right. William McKinley. No, it's a range of mountains named for presidents. All the mountains have presidential names? There are only 45 mountains. <laughs> Every four years, a new mountain is created. Uh-huh. <laughs> President Trump, or Mount Trump, is uh, orange New Hampshire sandstone. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, it's where Mount Washington is, I guess. It's a, it's a ski area. Right. And to this day, you can go there and ski at the Mount Washington Hotel to this very day, in the well, not not to our listeners. There's an Adams. There's a how many? There's bu- a Jefferson. There's an Eisenhower. Whoever Whoa. thought they skipped a bunch? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, dot dot dot. Where you know to name something Mount Eisenhower means that it had a name before Mount Baldy. Oh no! Ooh, that's good. I like it. I'm gonna guess it was called Baldy. Uh, what are some of the other names? Uh, oh, yeah, famous Mount Kerrigan, named after President Kerrigan. Nancy Kerrigan will be elected president uh-huh. in the future there. Uh, or maybe it was going to be Mount Kerry, and then when he lost, when John Kerry lost, oh, they were like, uh, Kerry, Kerrigan. gun. Doctor, doctor, doctor. <laughs> Rosen penis. Uh, yeah, I've been across this uh, mountain range, the presidential range, um, but I didn't realize what was happening. You didn't realize how presidential the I didn't. experience was. I was just, you know, I was just driving along, just, or I'm sorry, riding along on a cog just, railway of some just kind, smoking weed and not even aware of what was happening of, of history as it passed by you. That's right. Uh, the, uh, you know, if you were to ski there, you could stay in the Mount Washington Hotel. You know, a lovely kind of luxe early 20th century ski resort. 
that was full of ghosts, probably right? Oh, for or, sure. Like uh, elevators full of blood. Yeah, maybe the ghosts of uh, the ghosts of pre World War Two economic theory because this was the site of the Bretton Woods conference. Oh, we've discussed in July uh, 1944. Bretton Woods just briefly uh, in our gold standard episode. We yeah, we just talked about is it do you think the Bretton Woods conference will ever be its own uh, omnibus entry? Should we tread lightly here or? No, no, probably it probably eventually should, but we're not going to be able to cover it. Uh, we're 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 uh, we're all around it right now. We're a we're a fairy ring around Bretton Woods. So let's let's leave it for next year. Uh in July 1944, then, the basics of Bretton Woods, uh, the world economy is in shambles after two world wars and a Great Depression in between them. So 44 nations congregate and ski, presumably, mm-hmm. at this at this weird Overlook Hotel-like spot. The in entire the nations the don't congregate, though. They have representatives. They each send a representative or two. No, it would, the, the hotel is not the Hilbert Hotel. <laughs> it, could not hold, it could not hold every citizen of every allied nation. Uh, And the idea is to plan out what the world economy might look like going forward. This is the wonderful thing about the mid-20th century. Um, We truly believed that we could plan out the global economy and political uh, architecture. Look, we've been doing this wrong, but what if like 60 smart people with monocles were in a hotel? 60 people with monocles. And then all the problems will fall. We'll figure it out. We've all read the same books. We've got the right theories now. That really is what they were thinking. You know, John Maynard Keynes having kind of recently developed pretty much from the whole cloth, the study of macroeconomics. Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of felt like we, we now understand monetary policy at a broad level. All we have to do is follow, you know, these simple rules. Socialists hate him. Well, that's the thing about the about the mid twentieth century, right? It was it's kind of like the way in the eighteenth, or in the, I'm sorry, in the nineteenth century, the the thrill of Darwinism caused people to misapply the the principles of Darwinism to almost anything they could get their hands on, um, but but in particular, sort of social structures were seen to be Darwinistic, or you know, could be described with Darwinian language. And in the mid 20th century, it was the scientific method and everything could be a science. Economics could be a science and social science could, could be uh, like, we could just reduce it down to formulas. We finally understand efficiency. We have, we have technocrats now. Everybody can stand down. It's going to be okay. It's super easy to, to understand. We'll just lay it out. We'll just diagram this sentence. Well, things couldn't have gotten much worse. Uh, you know, in the in the preceding decades, everything had gone to hell in a handbasket. Britain had tried to get back on the gold standard with chaotic results. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, because countries would manipulate exchange rates to encourage, uh, you know, purchase of domestic products, effectively beggaring their neighbors, uh, all kinds of confusion about tariffs. And, you know, just the general idea was that the depression need not have happened if we just had the right little checkpoints right. and institutions. Right. Uh, so this conference basically created what came to be the post-war economic world, what capitalism was going to look like for at least the next 30 years till Nixon took us off the gold standard. World Bank, International Monetary Fund, they all came out of this. Both those were created at the time, and those still exist to this day. So you can say that it's also the architecture for the the— capitalist 
economic system that we have today. But that's the thing about Bretton Woods, right? It, um, of all the political and economic theories that were that were kind of blowing around in the wind in 1944, Bretton Woods really double tripled down on a kind of capitalist solution to the global economy. And that was largely the work of one man who is was not well known in his time and is nearly forgotten today, a uh, a Treasury Department functionary named Harry Dexter White. We got there. Wow. That was pretty quick. So fast. This is amazing. We're going to be done in 15 minutes. We can go get some <laughs> breakfast. Uh, White uh, came to the this conference, uh, he said, looking for a new deal for a new world, capital N, capital D. You know, he was he was from the Roosevelt cabinet, although Truman was now president. Yeah, hadn't we been rolling in some new deal? Hadn't we been soaking in the new deal palm olive for a while? Right. And now finally we're going to be able to export that brand of hopeful can-do American spirit to the global economy. Uh, and he and, you know, in theory, John Maynard Keynes, who was there representing the British Empire— what should have been the architects of this deal. He seemed like the smarter of the two. Right. He had just invented macroeconomics. You'd think this would be the guy to run the show. But White didn't like all his ideas. Keynes wanted, uh, thought we should come out of the conference with an international currency called the Bancor. Oh. With hmm. a C? What, like what, Rancor? Yeah, like Rancor with a B. What do we think about the name? I don't think, I think, no. I, I think that, that maybe is why he got sidelined. That's a terrible name for a currency. Imagine like a heavy metal t-shirt with Bancor, Bancor. written in the in the Motley Crue font. Bancor, Maine. Yeah, Bancor's not a great name. But, no. uh, but Esperanto, now that's a great name. For a currency? Yeah, why don't they just call it the Esperanto? Esperanto bucks? <laughs> White, on the other hand, did not want a global currency because he thought we already had a global currency. As the American dollar. The U.S. dollar. Yeah. As we explained in the Fort Knox episode, you know, the gold reserves uh, had, of Europe had been depleted by the war, had poured into the United States. Uh, the dollar became the, the you know, default global currency of choice. Uh, America was loving this. And Harry Dexter White knew that this was the path forward. If you want an American century, it's got to be built on the U.S. dollar. Uh, he was not the most likable guy in the world. Hmm. He was arrogant. He was a bully. He was a late starter, interestingly. He had served in World War I, and he didn't start university studies until he came home an officer. And I think he was 30 by the time he actually went off to college. Oh, but I support it. You, you, uh, you were enthused about— Well, I don't, like, I don't like the idea that he's a bully, but I, but I think that people should not go to college necessarily when they're 18. I think that they should— They should, maybe, go, to world, they should, they should go to World War One. Yeah, they should go to war they for should, a while. First of all, they should take on the Kaiser— <laughs> And then, uh, and then they should get there and then, uh, then work on their essays. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think he kept his diploma in his kitchen for years, well, wondering if it was a diploma or not. You know, <laughs> he, he, uh, he probably made it through in four years instead uh, of 40 years. But he, despite his late start, he very quickly rose through the ranks at the Treasury Department, despite, you know, really never having had any title that would put him in the headlines. Why? He, he pretty much held the reins of... Uh, of American foreign and economic policy by was 1944. It, was he just one of these overconfident guys who walked in and everybody assumed he knew what he was doing? Or did did he have a patron? Like, how did he leapfrog up the chain? I really do think it was just his uh, his aggressive 
nature. You know, he was he was a very driven guy. You know, he was clearly smart, real attention to detail, uh, and it didn't hurt that Roosevelt FDR's Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau was apparently not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Interesting. Like he really wanted to go to FDR looking smart. And if he had one guy in the room saying, okay, here's, here's the three action items. You know, here's, here's what the, here's the policy you bring to the president. Morgenthau loved this because it made him look like a can do guy when really he just had some very uh, assertive, ambitious undersecretary. That's interesting. Cause Morgenthau is like uh, <clears throat> credited with, the New Deal, the original New Deal, or I mean, you know, he's like, he made a lot of policy. Pretty solid. It was, yeah. it was a good deal. It was, it was a new one. But, yeah, it was different than the previous deals, which did not have, you know, Tennessee Valley dams and, and <laughs> such right. like. That's Re- right. Really nice uh, visitor centers at national parks. And civilian conservation corps. A lot fewer murals. We should have a lot more of those, in fact. I agree 100%. Uh, so just the fact that he was just a really dogged bulldog of a government functionary, I think, drove him, which really is a is an insight into how government works. Hmm. A lot of times it's just the person who wants it the most. And he did appear to have some aptitude. Uh, and as a result, uh, even though nobody liked him, even though he was pretty awful, he came into this conference with a very clear idea of what the post-war world should look like. And it should be the U.S. dollar, the British Empire was on its last legs, and all during the war, he thought the reason why we help the British is not just because it's the right thing to do, which is, was kind of the Roosevelt administration's policy, but Harry Dexter White is thinking because this will make them dependent on right. us. Like this, this is what this is what sends them to the number two spot in the food chain. Finally, this is exactly the kind of thing that um, when we when we look back at history and and we evaluate or interrogate the sort of way that policy is made by a small group of people in a smoke filled room. And we, and we think that the, that, um, that the arc of history is kind of tarnished by this exclusivity and lack of diversity. It's 70 guys at a ski resort planning the whole world monetary policy. But it's really examples like this where it's, like one barely qualified guy who just talks over everybody else. And he's got an idea that he came up with in the outhouse one morning, you know, while he was looking at his toenails, wiping himself with the Sears catalog. Right. And, and 70 years later, we're all still just sort of laboring under an unexamined, uh, you know, chain of consequences from this. Here it is. The IMF, we still got it. And it really, you know, it, it casts, it casts an, uh, like a negative shadow over things like the Constitutional Congress, uh, you know, 150 years before. <laughs> 70 guys with wigs telling <laughs> us all what's what. Which actually was pretty great, you know, like really smart people with, with really good uh, um, intentions and uh, that produced like – And ideas, a, yeah. Uh, produced an, an amazing American, uh, you know, foundation – but but we we look at moments like this and we just go oh god if it had only been open to a few more if <laughs> if just like there'd been a couple other ideas that got bandied about if the intimidated nerd had spoken up in the meeting yeah, you know right. or the woman you know you know whoever wasn't allowed to to just run roughshod over the rest of the staff like like a white was and i th- and i think um i think the you know a big criticism of the of Bretton Woods came from 
other parts of the world, like other economies that weren't uh, that were developing, and that these that this IMF based sort of universe really. Yeah, it was, it was really, a northern hemisphere centric. It really outcome. was right, it, and that's it, not by accident. That's that's somebody going in thinking, "I here, here's what I can get out of this," and right. not all the other delegates apparently had the same kind of uh, ruthless game plan. It's an astonishing little turn, and you're right. Most people don't think about Bretton Woods, or uh, and when the when you do think about it, you think about it like, "Oh, it's one of these conferences of rich people," but but. It's just the, Davos in New Hampshire. The idea that this guy, this this guy who who didn't go to college till he was thirty, who was universally reviled as <laughs> on his by his own staff as a jerk, like set all these balls in motion. And not just that, but the being a jerk actually helped. You know, he would uh, he played just ruthless power politics at this conference. Uh, I think historians have later estimated that 95% of the of the paperwork that came out of Bretton Woods, the agreement, was his ideas and and language. Wow. And, and often he would often he would resort to dirty tricks. You know, he and Keynes would agree on something, and then he would make sure the language was kind of obfuscated until the final documents came out. And Keynes has to sign a thing that suddenly reflects none of his ideas. And Keynes is just a, a naturally a more uh, reserved or or uh, deferential personality? I guess. I mean, he's just, I guess he's a British lefty. Right. So are we just supposed to assume that he's, uh, I mean, he, uh, White was very mean to him. White's the, White's the ugly American here, saying things like, we will try to produce something which your highness can understand. I mean, he's talking to the world's greatest economist. Wow. And he's just going to. Class diss him. Be a dick until, until Keynes signs off and goes away. Um but the interesting thing about this one guy pushing through this very America-centric, dollar-centric view of post-war capitalism is that, just to jump ahead a bit, in 1950, when the FBI's Venona Project hmm. started decrypting and releasing communiques uh, regarding Soviet espionage in America, mm-hmm. a figure variously called Lawyer Richard jurist shows up, you know, codename jurist. He changes his codename all the time. But it becomes uh, very clear to the FBI people reading this that this important Soviet asset in the American government was, in fact, Harry Dexter White, the architect of 20th century capitalism. Was a, was a Soviet spy? Soviet, yes. Are we going to say Soviet on the whole show? I hope so. <laughs> I may have soul, but I'm no Soviet. I said, I said, I said, interrogate instead of interrogate. So really, it's you know the ball's up in the air. We can do whatever we want. Oh, do you get feedback for saying interrogate instead of interrogate? I don't. I don't know. This that's a reference to a different show. But but uh, but that we have pronounced so many things so many ways. I don't think that. You can say there's a canonical pronunciation. We're trying to make sure all prescriptivism dies yeah, by saying right. words differently every, every time. time. So the Soviet, we say them. The Soviets. Or Soviets, as they are sometimes the known. Soviets from the Soviet Union. Right. It's confusing how they do that. Uh, uh, had recruited Harry Dexter White. How? This ardent America first capitalist? It's one of the great ironies of Bretton Woods that... Uh, that this is the guy. Um, it's a, it's a tricky period to think about what the assumptions we might have about what a Cold War era Soviet spy was, 
Because this is 1944, remember. The Soviet Union is run by Joseph Stalin, one of the worst men of the century, but he is also our most important ally right. in the war against global fascism. Right. The real enemy. So on just from a real politics sense, you've got plenty of establishment forces thinking we've got to we've got to do right by Stalin. He's taken it on the chin. Uh, you know, this is t- for the war to end right, for fascism to be defeated. Uh, you know, we need to actually play nice with the Russians. And in fact, the Roosevelt administration's assumption going into Bretton Woods, interestingly, was that the post-war world would be quite rosy and that it would be very easy to co-opt the USSR to uh, to this uh, new American century, that basically uh, our economic model would be no obstacle to them being our allies with a with a different weird domestic system and we oh. really underestimated oh but they would that they would join in the global economic system and yeah. maintain a kind of home country communism this would this would be easy uh, pretty much all uh the roosevelt administration's assumptions going into Bretton woods turned out to be false the whole thing was built on the idea that uh the british empire could be peacefully dismantled with no trouble that germany would not be reindustrialized after the war and that the russians would be our subordinates and buddies. So there was a plan, if I recall, to and, and this was, you know, a lot of the a lot of the damage of the Treaty of Versailles was that it sought to punish Germany by forever. Forever. By um and disabling her by uh, by making her a kind of a client state and mm. taking her military away and so forth. Um and uh, during World War II there was a similar, even more draconian plan to basically turn Germany into a, a completely agrarian society, to take all of the industry, just com- completely deindustrialize it and make it basically a, a farm country. Because that's what keeps happening. They keep the Ruhr Valley keeps turning out tanks. If we could just stop the Ruhr Valley from turning out tanks, right? Think how think how much more peaceful the world would but be. But the problem is it also makes aspirin and contact lenses <laughs> and blenders <laughs> and. Uh, Microscopes. Yeah, it's um, it was short sighted, but I guess when you're at war, sure, nobody wants to be the one saying, hey, "But but, but we, we should let them make yeah. aspirin, yeah. Co- yeah. contact lenses." <laughs> <laughs> so so during the war, it's very easy to be punitive. You know, nobody wants to say, "Hey, let's look ahead to when Germany and Japan are making very nice cameras." Right. You know, like nobody's, I guess nobody's thinking that way. Well, not nobody. You were. I was, right. <laughs> in utero. Well, and you know, Marshall, uh, although that came later and that was a, a team of team of thinkers. That is kind of where the story ends because the Marshall Plan essentially is what Does replaces the, the mothballed ideals that went into Bretton Woods uh, when all those assumptions turned out to be wrong, right. basically. Um, but so, but in addition to this real politic that we need to support our Soviet allies, no matter what how they're taking it on the chin from our... Uh, you know, from from the Nazis or uh, here at home. Um, Nazis, we say. The Nazis. That's what probably Keynes would have said. Uh, there's also the fact that there's different ideologies within the government. Uh, Harry Dexter White was a La Follette progressive in the 20s and 30s. You don't see those as much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were thick on the ground then, but, you know, now you can— you Show can, me a La Follette You can go days without running into a Robert La Follette voter. <laughs> Just, you know, who who supported this technocratic idea of how just robust government intervention would really lead to smooth economies if we could just 
figure it out. And uh, in particular, I think Harry Dexter White was viscerally opposed to the kind of American imperialism he saw going on in Latin America. And this is this is the kind of thing La Follette spoke out against. You know, America should not be one of these old school, uh, too big for its britches empires. Um, you know, we're going to solve this with uh, smarts and equality, uh, equality verging on today what we would call socialism. And so the idea White was being, a believer. The idea being that that we should not be directly imperialist, but that we should spearhead a kind of economic what what we what we now would call economic imperialism, but then was imagined to be a, a, an attempt to achieve economic perfection, a kind of thing that was higher than any one government or system. Yeah, it happens to super benefit us, but that's beside the point. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. It's actually the purest form right. of of uh, human exchange. We didn't have to send troops into Guatemala. Right. All know? we had to do was just send in banks. Yeah, send <laughs> send in dollars basically. Yeah, I think he's I think he's blind to the idea to the idea what we realize today what Bretton Woods did to the global south. Um, but, you know, White is coming from a place of being very skeptical about untrammeled capitalism and American imperialism. And he wasn't alone back then. Right. Especially just think about how at the time the there were plenty of Americans who thought the Russian Revolution was something hopeful. A despot had been overthrown, and as fascism began to rise in the 30s, suddenly, you know, this was the ideological opponent to that. You you know, you, if you throw your lot in with these guys, sure, maybe that we, we were going to have to look aside at some, at some human rights stuff. Oh, the gulags and stuff, but that's way out in the country. It's, uh, it's kind of early. I mean, I think—, I think uh, White did and should have known about this kind of stuff and tended to underemphasize it in his writings. I mean, not to forgive everyone, but... Not to forgive Stalin. That's always a good way to start a sentence, by the way. (laughs) Not to forgive Stalin, but not to forgive Stalin's apologists in America. But it was difficult to keep an eye on every single thing (laughs) that was happening in the Soviet (laughs) Union. Hitler's a pretty big deal. Russia's huge and a thousand miles further east. Uh, we, yeah, we're, we're not really, I mean, it's, it's today. Like how, how often do you think about the Uyghurs in China? Right. Not as often as we should considering how lousy it is right now to be a Uyghur in China. Right. Um, well, and they, and they had just, or they were in the midst of the Spanish, um, the Spanish civil war. And that was sort of a testing ground of all these different ideologies. And, and that's where our good young people went right. to fight fascism. To because fight fascism often as uh, uh, on the side of communists. On the side of the partisans. Right. This uh, reflected an ideological divide in America, where on the left you have people thinking, you know, fascism is the real problem. And with, with, <laughs> with some justification. <laughs> say. These were good progressives. <laughs> these were often Jewish people. These right. people were well aware of what could happen. Very educated and, and experienced. Right. And so, you know, this is a... They wouldn't even have said necessary evil. They would have said there's a greater good. You know, you you support Stalin because there's a greater good to be served. And honestly, it's the same thing we see today when people say, yes, yes, I know that some people on my side just did something awful, but but there's a greater good. Or, you know, a, a cutthroat, you know, some, you know, the uh, Mitch McConnell type using cutthroat political tactics in the Senate that he would hate if his adversaries did it. But that's okay. There's a greater ideological good to be served. Everybody does it. It's the, it's the truly terrifying thing, as Renoir said, that everybody has his reasons. And you see, you see right now, um, uh, there are a lot of people that will sort of apologize for the 
current government of Venezuela mm-hmm. because the alternative seems to be American imperialism, which they are more against. Right. And so you get into these impossible situations where you're defending at the indefensible. Was Evo Morales perfect? <laughs> no. But, and you see it on the other side too, you've got, right. you know, actual members of Congress, Dana Rohrbacher or whoever saying, is Putin perfect? <laughs> No, but but on the other hand, what you're missing is that sometimes he rides a horse shirtless, and it's pretty good. That is good. Uh, I mean, handsome. And he's he's and handsome. Maybe these. I don't know. I'd like to get in these people's heads at some point. I don't know how that works. Maybe at some point in the future there will be a technology that allows me to go into Devin Nunes's yeah brain. Well, what it'll be is a, is we aspenize. And we become a single organism, and you can you travel around our root system. But will empathy immediately happen? And will I think, oh, yeah, no, these guys weren't so bad after all. I wonder if the empathy will go the other way, and Devin Nunes will be like, <laughs> wow, what was I thinking this whole time? Why was I such a dick? I just wonder, what is he, what is he thinking? Like, is he like, geez, you know, I guess there's all this... I, I need these. I need this dirty money being funneled to me, or I need them not to release what they have on me. Or, on some levels, he's just like us, thinking, hey, privately, I'll tell you, Putin's not great. Right. But I have important policy aims, and those are represented by having me and my party in government. And if that means temporarily smiling at Putin, hey, we got to get these Federalist Society guys on the bench. You know, like, <laughs> does, does, there's a greater good I mean, to him. Maybe. All politics is that at a, at a certain level, because if you go into politics as a purist, as, a, right. as, as someone with a, who believes there's an ideologically pure solution to every problem and all everyone else has to do is just agree with you 100%. You get nowhere or you become, you know, you become one of these sort of pariah politicians that um that never passes any legislation but d- gives a lot of angry speeches. I assume you won't even get elected or reelected because so much of just the process of running is having to say Here's 10 things I don't want to do or say, but it, you know what? I, I just got to get into office. Once it, I get the seat. It depends on where you run, right? And Seattle is such a progressive uh, city that you can, and we do have members of our city council. The uh, purists. Who are absolute purists, who really cannot effectively pass any legislation, uh, but they are kind of heroes of the city because of the because they they never cave, right? They never... They never surrender even a, 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 like a tiny portion of their integrity. And you see that on the other side in, in sort of like rural uh, Congress people from, you know. A, a safe district in Mississippi. That's or, right. Or Wyoming where they are, you know, they believe in things that w- are, would just be impossible th- for the United States. They can just say QAnon and birtherism stuff yeah. on TV. I mean, they can just say like uh, – like, you could you could put to death a mother a teenage mother who got an abortion an incest abortion you should it would be you can charge her with murder mm. and their constituency is like great yeah amazing let's we should, reimplant some ectopic pregnancies we should do that in me yeah the, right, the ectopic pregnancy <laughs> thing where it's like that's not a thing you guys it's not actually a thing you can't make that a law so so you can be pure you can be a purist in in government but you but you can't be effective. You need to start some kind of seminar, some for-profit Roderick University, where you provide horse trading lessons for, for purity test progressives. Like, once you guys are in office, let me tell you, like, you're going to have to do some of this stuff, and I'm going to walk you through it. When I ran for office, it was this incredible education, because, I would, because when I went in, I went in just like every, um, every neophyte politician. 
where I said, it seems like the solution to these problems is pretty simple. All we need to do is X. The common sense choice, John Roderick. And there was always a technocrat, you know, kind of standing at my elbow who would say, the problem with that is that the state legislature has passed a prohibitive law that actually prohibits what you're saying. You know what's in the very middle of technocrat? No. (laughs) It really was. You can't spell technocrat without no. Over and over. And so these people were always like, the problem with that is the funding. And the problem with the funding is that we don't have the taxation authority to raise the money to pay for the thing that you're suggesting is a simple solution. And and it was one thing after and I, and I then you could see the you actually could see the problem. This is when you turned into a, a small government uh, libertarian. Yeah, yeah that's and right. burned the whole thing down. That's when I was just like, you know what, what? What we have to do? Clean sweep. What's with this regulation? What's with this swamp in Olympia? So I took my pitchfork and my and my <laughs> torch and a three cornered hat <laughs> and I started marching on Washington. Hear ye, hear ye. That's why we're doing this show from Nebraska because I'm halfway to Washington. <laughs> Can you know that? Uh, uh, that most deodorants contain aluminum. Yes. I've seen that. Uh, the, uh, the way that they work is they actually plug your sweat glands to keep you from sweating. So if you've ever had part of your body where you thought, I just need to put more of a strange metal on my cells here. Yeah. Right. Conventional deodorant is, is for you, but, but John, what if I'm a person who wants a more natural solution? What if I want some kind of, deodorant that doesn't have any aluminum or parabens or talc? Is there one that's vegan? Is there one that's not tested on animals? I want to feel good about myself when I'm putting stuff under my arm. You're saying you don't want your body to be a love canal of heavy metals. You would like a natural alternative. Well, let me tell you, Ken, there is an option for you. It's called Native deodorant. Oh, we're doing native advertising. We are. This is it's completely completely <laughs> native to our show, and the product is native. Capital N native. That's right. It's made without aluminum, without parabens or talc. I don't know what any of those things are, and I'm so happy I don't need to now. You don't want to know. Uh because what I mean, talc, think about the talc wars. Uh, that on the off worlds, that's not a thing you want to get involved in. <laughs> the less I know about talc, the better. But the uh, but native products are also vegan, not tested on animals, meeting your stringent criteria. They're made with ingredients you've heard of, like for instance, have you heard of coconut oil? I have. Have you heard of shea butter? Yes, I put it on my uh, uh, ashy elbows and knees. <laughs> you go. Well, this. This is a product made of material you already employ. So Native has sent us some uh, samples of their product. And uh, what, what do you remember what scent you chose? I do. It was eucalyptus and mint, uh, a delightful combination. You're going to smell flames. like a, a koala bear with an Altoid in its mouth. <laughs> Even more than I already do. What flavors did you choose? I chose, uh, so I guess uh, they were really pushing the bergamot and pine, but yep. I, I didn't want to look up bergamot. Right. That's a little bit uh, musky. I, well, I got citrus and herbal musk. Yeah. Do I want that? I think you do. It, I smelled, think you do. it smelled great. Lavender and rose, uh, cucumber and mint. I didn't even see coconut and vanilla on the list. Maybe that's a women's scent. Uh, coconut and vanilla. I want to smell like it's coconut actually, and vanilla. It's, it's, a, it's a, a flavor of milkshake. <laughs> anyway, Do not uh, put milkshake under your arms. There are, there's a wide variety of options for people of all genders, even teenagers of uh, any gender. 
And there are unscented options and a baking soda-free formula for those with baking soda sensitivities. What an inclusive deodorant we have discovered. Also, uh, people that don't want to support the baking soda uh, mines on the off planet. <laughs> they have stinky fridges, but great smelling underarms. Uh, this is There's free shipping on every order. And Native offers a three-day, I'm sorry, a 30-day free return policy and exchanges in the USA. John and I are happy users of Native deodorants. And uh, we are uh, like the 9,000 people who have written five-star reviews on uh, Native's online reviews uh, aggregation sites. <laughs> and if you also would like to try Native, and keep in mind, 30 days of free returns, we can offer you 20% off your first purchase if you go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code OMNIBUS during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com, promo code OMNIBUS for 20% off your first purchase. Well, when you talk about all the kind of sensible reasons that there might have been to... Uh, to battle fascism by, uh, you know, trying to uh, carve out room for pro-Soviet loyalties in government at this time. You also had people who were straight up on the payroll. We know now that uh, there were communist spirings at shockingly high levels of the Roosevelt and Truman administrations and around a, this time. And a lot of that spying, when, when we think about it we, now, we think about it in a Cold War context. Subterfuge, yeah. But at the time, it was really, a lot of it was just information gathering, or a lot of it was just like, hey, what are they saying in those meetings that we're not invited to? That's exactly what happened. The Silvermaster Group, which was kind of the most notorious spying when communist spying when word got out, out of the war, these were just a bunch of guys. It was Silvermaster was the guy that ran the war production board. So he had tons of information on U.S. materiel, and he thought we weren't telling our allies enough about our tanks or our guns or our planes or whatever. So he would make sure every day a courier named Elizabeth Bentley came up from New York to Washington, collected everybody's party dues from the War Production Board, because there were a bunch of <laughs> card-carrying communists on the War Production Board, uh, uh, handed out literature, handed out, you know, good workers, uh, workers movement Chick literature, tracks. basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Chick tracks with, um, with, uh, farmers on tractors on the front and, uh, and then took all these documents back to her dark room to take pictures and send to Moscow because everybody kind of thought, yeah, um, all this bureaucracy is keeping our allies from knowing about the war effort. There's other factions from the government that are too pro British. We need to level the playing field. For our Russian friends, and this was just a, this was daylighted. I mean, they this is just no. <laughs> they, they would have gotten so much trouble, John. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture like she's walking through the office, like, "Hey, everyone, I'm here. Got to send the new documents to Stalin." Yeah. And everyone's like, "Oh, but there's cake in the break room." <laughs> I mean, there within this ring, sure, this was kind of understood that this was the way good sit American citizens, lefty sit American citizens, should be behaving. Right. Um, but no, this is something that right, was course. unveiled. In the by the House on American Activities Committee after the war, um, and speaking of them, I mean these are the people when McCarthy waved that piece of paper and said that he had ninety eight theses. Card, I have card carrying communists in the, in the State, State Department. Department. The, these are the people that he was. So, yeah. Some of these are the examples he used. He was grandstanding, and his numbers were wrong. But the fact was true, at least a uh, you know a decade previous uh, when it was. 
much less unfashionable right. to be a communist sympathizer, <laughs> a sympathizer in the State Department, or communist sympathizer. Or right. What would that you be know, like? Is that what well, Sting plays on? Uh, know, do the have, Russians love their children too? We have one right here. Oh, it got unplugged. Our communist synthesizer got unplugged. I have to unplug the keyboard in order to plug in my laptop. Oh, bummer. Okay. I'm sorry. So we can't have your. Um, you can't play the riff to jump <laughs> anymore while beep, we do the show. Beep, beep. <laughs> that wouldn't be a communist synthesizer, though. Those no. guys were those were free market rock bands. Right. That's why Billie Eilish and hates they, them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so where on this continuum was Harry Dexter White? He was a fairly true economic believer, it turns out. Um, in collective? In, yes, in planned economies. Oh, okay. In 1940, we now have, have an essay from him. This was recently discovered by, uh, I think, Ben Stile is the guy's name. He's, he's kind of the leading scholar on Harry Dexter White's Soviet ties uh, in our era. And he uncovered an essay that... Uh, that White wrote in 1944, so it would have been on the eve of Bretton Woods, that ends with the sentence, Russia is the first instance of a socialist economy in action, and it works. Hmm. So this was kind of the hope of the left at that time, that that a collectivized economy might be a, a fairer, more just America, uh, and we can learn from that. Right. And in 1933, we know that he actually, you know, while he was a college student in Wisconsin, in his 30s, I guess, he actually tried to go to the Soviet Union. He was one of these young Americans that wanted to go see the, the, the utopia. And the only reason why he didn't go is because that was when he got his job offer to work with the Treasury Department, which Whoa, began his crime, climb to power. <laughs> if the letters come in the opposite order, <laughs> think how the global economy looks different today. So now how did he square his Bretton Woods ideas with the idea that the that that uh, that he believed a, a planned economy was the solution to global inequality? It's a tricky question. Uh, I, I wonder if... His his be- his first loyalty is to America, to the U.S. dollar. You right. know, like we tend to think of a spy as somebody who is willing to sell out his country for her enemy. But in this case, it's clear that White thought that America's geopolitical preeminence was the main thing he needed to secure first, at least because because that was going to secure the peace. Yes, in in the wake of the of the two world wars and the depression, I think that was the triage he needed. But I assume he was still very hopeful that some of the Russian innovations would work in America. You know, in this new economy, he just wanted to make sure the dollar and not the pound. I mean, a, a, honestly, his antipathy to the to the British Empire wanted to make sure that power ended is one of the main reasons probably for his his pro-soviet stances one of the things about uh, about economists from this era and a lot of a lot of this uh, uh this mentality exists today is the belief that there is a there is a pure system or or that left to its own devices economies will um sort of like an airplane if you take the your hand off the stick the plane will just like find level it's flight. It's literally an invisible hand on right. the controls. That if you, you know, and, and, and so we hear about it over and over, trickle-down economics. We hear about, uh, you know, all the supply-siders, all of the kind of, the the idea that... that if the, you do less, you capitalism do, just works out. It will just work out, right? And so, and I believe there are were a lot of people that believed that was also true of the kind of rise of planned economies. Yeah, it happened on both sides. Yeah, that global communism was eventually going to just percolate out, become the preferred system, 
by virtue of its virtue. I guess you just think your ideas are inevitable. Yeah, inevitable. Like, yeah, exactly because, right. because they seem so obvious to me. After all, they're my ideas. And so when you look at the the problems with those uh, with those systems, supporters of them can always find a reason they didn't work, and it was because <laughs> some it was because their enemy intervened. And so it would be a perfect system if only there weren't an IMF or there weren't a Bretton Woods agreement or there weren't, you know, if these, if these interventions on the part of their, uh, or their opponents hadn't screwed up the Petri dish, we would already be living in a world where, uh, where we had pure equality. I mean, now that billionaire capitalism and um, Marxist communism are both looking kind of equally discredited maybe that maybe everybody was right maybe if those two hadn't always been just slap fighting in the back seat <laughs> one of them would have worked out perfectly we don't know which one who knows instead, who cares instead <laughs> we're just stuck with the two awful ones and it's the it's the messy problem of of any kind of um it's the messy problem of global democracy mm-hmm. and and um and the alternative to imperialism which is global basically uh monarchy or, or uh, oligarchy, if you let every country have an independent say in how it's managed, you don't have a global economy that's planned. You have everybody show up with their own, their own currency and their own state plan, and you have to make that work as a global economy? Not if you have the bank or. Why don't we just have the, the bank, bank or? or? Then what would the Chinese be doing right now? Uh, they would be. <laughs> They'd also be using the bank or Yeah, they would be shipping all their goods to the West and uh, and then buying up a ton of bank ores so they control our debt. But it's just in bank ores this time. It was wonderful in the second half of the 20th century when we had half of the world, not half of the world, but uh, well, yeah, half of the world had planned economies and half of the world had free market economies, and somehow they they coexisted without a ton. There was trade. Between the two sides, but that's the ultimate invisible hand. You got to let capitalism and communism both exist, f- fight it out. Both have half the world. <laughs> that, that perfect balance <laughs> will be maintained. <laughs> Apparently, it's now a tenet of this show that uh, that uh, Soviet-style communism and Western capitalism are equally good. That, I, I guess I don't know. That's, <laughs> is that now? Is that now the omnibus approved point of view? Both sides. <laughs> We're going to teach the controversy. <laughs> Uh, it's so it's but it's kind of an open interestingly white's interventions in policy did not at at the soviet behest did not begin at bretton woods whitaker chambers later said that in as early as 1935 uh harry dexter white was uh was a soviet asset although interestingly he was such a dick that he he told his his spy masters that he would not take orders he was just going to do what he felt like doing if he if he saw a document that he thought Stalin should see, he was going to send it along. But nobody was going to tell him, Harry Dexter, why, what to do. He was just too bloody-minded. Oh, so he, wa- he wasn't advancing uh, Marxist-Leninism. He was just Harry Dexter Whiting, <laughs> and, and everybody should get in line? Maybe other spies think that, right? That like, uh, Or maybe he's just the rare, ambitious spy with enough power to say, I've got my agenda, I'm going to use the Soviets, the Soviets, where it... Uh, it conveniences me. If I were a spy, I absolutely would assume I was smarter than Thank my you. handlers. Sure, you're probably not wrong. And so, what would you? Why would you submit to some uh, 
You'd be sending angry Polar emails Bureau. all the time. Just You'd be, be like, like, how dare you? So the dead drop by the drain pipe is not working for me. And here's why. <laughs> it leaks in February. <laughs> you know, I, I made my dead drop and then I watched. And if I could see my handler, <laughs> so could the enemy. Yeah, there's a reason why you're a freelancer. and uh, That's right. Yeah. Spy masters must hate freelancers. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. I marched to the beat of my own drummer. I'm the cat who walked by his wild loan, and all governments look alike to me. Harry Dexter White was uh, a man after your own heart, ex- except in probably in terms of almost all of his sure. ideas and allegiances. Uh, well, and also, I'm not a <laughs> No, of course not. But uh, in 1941, the NKVD um, began what they called Operation Snow, which was to exert more influence, NKVD being the the KGB of its time. The precursor of the Soviet, yeah, today's, so, um, today's, of the 20th century Soviet spy apparatus, the KGB. It was called the NKVD at the time. Uh, Operation Snow was their uh, offensive of bringing more, of bringing more Western communist sympathizers on board and increasing the flow of information back to Moscow. And according to one of their spies, Vitaly Pavlov, in uh, the spring of 1941, he met with Harry Dexter White at the Old Ebbett Grill, which I guess is some legendary D.C. Down steakhouse. Down at the Ebbett Grill. Not far from the White House, wink, apparently. Wink. Oh, of course, right. Yeah, I mean, you could probably get crack in the parking lot. <laughs> That's what it was for. You would have prime rib, and then you'd get crack after. Uh, they met for lunch at this D.C. establishment, and apparently Pavlov handed him a note saying... Here's what Say, ding, Moscow ding, ding, thinks ding, ding, would be ding. great. <laughs> the, and the note apparently says, uh, we need the U.S. to take a harder line on Japan. We're tired of having these guys on our eastern front. Because uh, this is, you know, 1941, the, the Japanese war effort and militarization has been in the offing for, you know, a decade or so. And Stalin is terrified, and he wants a more anti-Japanese U.S. And it, to his mind... FDR has been too conciliatory. We can prevent a Pacific War with the Japanese. And White is delighted to read this. This is exactly what he thinks. He thinks the administration should be taking a harder line as well. So he writes a memo to Secretary of State Cordell Hall saying, we need to up the economic sanctions on Japan. We need more embargoes and we need harsher rhetoric. It is time to take a hard line on Japan. Right. And this continues throughout 1941 which has the effect of strengthening the voices for war in Tokyo as well. And uh, in some historians' point of view, this is what leads to the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th. The hard line being that, uh, that, um, that Japanese occupation of Manchuria is a, is a non-starter. For example, right. yeah. And, it, and in fact, all Japanese uh, expansionism in the Pacific sphere is a threat to America and not something we can solve with treaties, something that— we're going to have to start rattling sabers over. And this is clearly in Stalin's it's, it's, influence. It's, it's called a benefit. co-prosperity sphere. It's right there in the name. <laughs> it's called the Pacific Marketplace. They want- Oh, no, no, wait. That's it. SeaTac Airport. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there were plenty of voices, just as there were in the UK before the war, thinking that Hitler could be reasoned with. Right. Telling FDR, look, like the last thing we want is a Pacific front. Um, who cares about Manchuria? Let's play nice. And there are other historians who say, no, you know what? The U.S. would have taken a hard line anyway. Pearl Harbor would have happened anyway. But it certainly doesn't help. 2,400 Americans died at Pearl Harbor, and one data point seems to be this Russian spy, if he can be believed, handing Hmm. intelligence to Harry Dexter White and saying, 
go convince the State Department and Treasury Departments to turn up the heat on Hirohito and Tojo. So I'm not blaming him for Pearl Harbor, but some historians have. Now, after the war, after Bretton Woods, um, we can assume that Harry Dexter White is still excited about an American-dominated but, uh, but collectivism-friendly post-war world. Uh, Elizabeth Bentley, the same courier who was running documents from the Silver Master group to her darkroom. Silver Master? That seems like a Marvel Comics villain, but I guess, is that the name? Sil- yeah. Silver Master. It sounds so cool, but it's actually a guy. It's Nathan Silvermaster. Like, it's not... It's not they thought of a cool code name for themselves. Right. It was just the name of the war production board guy. She turns. I guess she is convinced that now Stalin is bad news. She can't ignore the human rights abuses anymore or whatever. Whatever whatever way the wind blows there, Liz. Elizabeth. She goes to J. Edgar Hoover. She goes to the FBI. Well, at least you can count on J. Edgar Hoover to be impartial. Finally, somebody (laughs) is sticking up for America and wearing women's underwear. Uh, and the FBI goes to the White House, and they, and one of the things Bentley that's a, says— That's a great Jimmy Stewart movie. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover goes to the White House. Jimmy Stewart is J. Edgar Hoover. No, 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 I'm Jimmy Hoffa. What, what you have to understand about Dr. King is— he, he, he. That's good. That's no, not that good. You, you, look, you look like Jimmy Stewart. That's why you can pull it off. But nobody can see. Uh, at the same time as Truman is being told, hey, this enormously powerful— Treasury Department functionary is actually a red. Uh, Truman has, I guess, just the wheels are in motion to a point. Harry Dexter White is the first head of the IMF. Whoa! So now Truman is in a tough spot. Can he? Can he back off? Does he defend this guy? Um, one of the things that Bentley tells the FBI is uh, maybe one of the worst things that, if we can't uh, Pearl Harbor aside, one of the worst things that Harry Dexter White may have done for his paymasters. Uh, In Europe after the war, the Allies prepared to release Allied Marks, a new German currency to rebuild post-war Europe with. Oh, right. Like, yeah, it was a a temporary currency. Right. Just kind of a temporary post-war currency. And uh, the U.S. was insistent that the plates for these Allied, to print these Allied Marks should stay in the United States and that we would have our hands on the purse spring purse strings right. or purse springs. If you have a purse springs. a spring loaded purse, <laughs> uh, perspiring. Yeah. Right. That's what I was going for. And, uh, Harry Dexter White, not surprisingly thinks that's that, not fair that the Russians should have, ac- well, the Russians believe they should have access to the currency as well. I mean, Germany is going to be partitioned between right. East and West. It's really not fair in the, post-war global sense if the U.S. is printing all the money. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong, but at the same time, you can't have everybody printing all the money. <laughs> That's exactly the U.S. response, and this is what happens. So uh, so the U.S. agrees that the plates for the Allied marks should stay in the U.S. Harry Dexter White strenuously disagrees and makes sure that the Soviets have access to this as well. What is this access to the plates? The, did they make additional plates and, and spirit them away, or— did, uh, was it like a like a co-parenting agreement where the Soviets could uh, could handle the plates on Wednesdays and Fridays? It's even worse than that. He did not try to convince his bosses that the Soviets should have access. He did not change the monetary policy. He just made sure that uh, the plates were passed along. Oh, he snuck them out. He snuck them out. Oh. And so during the years after the war, the U.S. printed 10.5 billion Allied marks in, you know, according to their carefully calculated um, 
sure. economic monetary policy of what would not cause devaluation or deflation or whatever. And the Russians, with access to the place, just printed money like it was going out of style. They printed 78 billion allied marks, flooding the market, which the U.S. was then bound to redeem at the exchange rate that we had committed to. So basically, between 300 and 500 million dollars went out of the U.S. Treasury directly to Stalin. Um, And that's 300 to 500, 1944 dollars. We are now talking, Harry Dexter White, just sending billions and billions of dollars from the U.S. Treasury to Moscow. Wow. Uh, the system would have worked great if only. Exactly. <laughs> and this is and and again, he's just thinking, you know, these guys have taken it on the chin. We need to be more generous in the post-war world to our Soviet allies. This is the least we can do, you know. So there's He's got his reasons. There's two there's two kind of mentalities there. One of them is the one that that you're mentioning, which is a kind of um like a gentle feeling that we need to be fair. And the other one is people were motivated by fear of Stalin's um, uh, of, the, of the of the things that Stal- the, the the terrors that he could that he could wreak and we don't um, want to threaten the peace. That's right. Let's play nice with this guy. Right. Yeah, that's a very and that's a very real concern. I mean, you've just this the war has been incredibly punishing. It's finally in the rearview mirror. I can see why there would be a tendency to play nice, right? Anyway, so Truman does a little hanky-panky Missouri shuffle. That's not an expression. Hmm, A little hanky-panky Missouri shuffle. The Missouri shuffle, where he uh, makes White the managing director, like the highest-ranking American, but then he tells our European allies, hey, I don't think the guy really running the show should be an American. There should be an executive director above White. Nice. So some Belgian is put in charge of the IMF. Of it's, course. It's effectively a demotion, but nobody's got egg on their they face. They got Tintin and put him in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, Tintin was in disgrace for <laughs> oh, collaboration with the Nazis. It was Captain Haddock. At this time. <laughs> exactly. Captain Haddock would never play nice. He would call Hitler a bashy bazook or or an iconoclast or something. Um, So people are starting to know. Elizabeth Bentley is saying, you guys didn't know that Harry Dexter White was a communist when he was running the Treasury Department? Whitaker Chambers is saying, you didn't know this guy was a Soviet asset while he was running the Treasury Department? Communist is how they pronounced it. Communist, is that what what Joe McCarthy would say? (laughs) It was the the style of the time. It's because it was so common back then to be be a Soviet sympathizer. communist. Uh, And in 1948, uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee wants to talk to Harry Dexter White. Now, he gets up there, and uh, luckily he's called towards the end of the HUAC kind of reign of terror. Huak, is that what we're saying? Uh, let's that, call it Huak. Huak. It's like a martial arts noise. Huak. And uh, he gets up in front of the committee and gives a, you know, reads a, a very patriotic speech. My creed is the American creed. I believe in freedom untrammeled by machine guns or secret police. I believe in the fabric of our way of life. So, you know, the crowd in the balcony gives him a big round of applause for his patriotism. Sure. Arrogant to the end. Right. And, uh, and he, d- he does a good job in front of the committee. Uh, a freshman congressman named Richard Nixon tries to nail him down on uh, having met Whitaker Chambers, who at this point was in the doghouse. And he he refuses to commit and says only, this is honestly something Trump should watch. He says he doesn't recollect having met Chambers. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing to say when being inter- interrogated by Congress. Trump always says, I don't know this guy. And then like right. an hour later, there's like six pictures on. on I don't recollect. Just don't recollect things. Come on. It's so much easier. Yeah. That's the genius of Ronald Reagan. No one can prove whether or not you recollect. Right. Uh, 
Later, he's given a list of names where suspected spies have blue checks, and he makes a joke. He says, I think the checks should be red. Uh, red checks, because they're reds. And he gets a big laugh from the gallery. That's a, that's a, that it's a, it's hilarious. It's a hilarious it's line. So he, he It's gives, very confusing now, of course, because we identify the red states as conservative, and that always, that always really, uh, that doesn't sit right with me. The liberal states should be the red states. I, my theory is that that was done out of an abundance of caution, right? So that the networks would not appear to be implying that Democrat, the, the democratically be, voting states uh, were were communist were sympathizers, right? That makes sense because that hadn't been true since at least the early fifties, as we see here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so he gives this bravura performance and appears to be. Uh, outwardly very confident. But in fact, he must have been under an insane amount of pressure. He must have known that the chickens were coming home to roost. Right. Because that very day, he gets on a train for his uh, summer home in New Hampshire and feels chest pains. And in fact, he's having a very serious heart attack. Oh. And makes it to New Hampshire. But by the following night, he has a second coronary incident oh. and is dead. Within two hours of having of being accused of of his you know, perfectly accurate communist ties in front of the House of Representatives. Does this seem like a convenient heart attack to you? Conspiracy theories <laughs> begin to circulate almost immediately that the Soviets have assassinated him, that he, in fact his death has been faked and he's been rushed out of the country through Maine, I would assume. He's how old at this He'd point? He'd fled to Uruguay. Um, he's only 55 years old. Oh, wow. That seems young. Considering I'm 51 years old. I mean, he, he was a government functionary in the 30s and 40s. He probably smoked right, six right, packs right, a right, day. Right. Um, Ate a lot of oily sandwiches. <laughs> at the old Ebbets Grill. Smoked a lot of crack across the street from the White House. Mm. Um, so it's not, you know, it's, it, it's probably the strain catching up with him. You know, n- none of these theories were true. But people did immediately start to talk. He was, it was well known then that this guy was, was probably working for them. Um, as you mentioned, uh, you know his legacy is that uh, almost ev- almost all of his administration's assumptions about Bretton Woods turned out to be wrong, uh, particularly about kind of the benign relationships we could have with the Soviet Union, uh, and the, the the Bretton Woods economic framework was mothballed almost immediately for the Marshall Plan, you know, building up Western Europe uh, against the very clear Soviet expansionism that was beginning. Right. And, and, and reinvigorating the industrial economies of Germany and Japan. Because now than, they are the lesser of two evils. Right. Stalin only had, he had a good 10 years, <laughs> but we've got a new lesser of two evils. So Stalin's rejection of this coexisting sort of let's, let's have uh, let's have like Soviet communism uh, live happily in a world enveloped by global capitalism. All he did was just say, no, right? It was he a, said yet. He didn't send anybody to Bretton right, Woods. Like yet. in the end, the Russians did not sign the Bretton Woods framework. Just as sort of it, uh, again an example of uh, like uh, Harry White could have legitimately made the appeal that it would have worked if only the Soviets had signed on. Well, we'll never. You know, that's the thing about any complex system. You will never. Historians will never agree about counterfactuals. Right on Earth too. Yeah, maybe uh, we we persuaded Stalin to send somebody to Bretton Woods, and everybody had their own little economic sphere of influence. Uh, you know, I guess nuclear weapons still exist, so it's a little bit tricky. 
Um, who knows what would have happened there. To this day, there's kind of a spectrum of opinion on just how dirty Harry Dexter White was. Uh, he always tried to maintain plausible deniability that, you know, he would, he was passing along information to people he knew to be Russian sympathizers or right. Soviet journalists. Like in general, he was not meeting directly with, with NKVD handlers um, and I think he li- maybe he liked to tell himself that uh, that he wasn't one of those kinds of traitors. Sure, he was smarter than them anyway. Sure. And to this day, his daughters are still alive. And anytime something is written about Harry Dexter White's uh, tarnished legacy, they will write letters to the editor saying, actually, there's still a broad swath of opinion. Our dad was such a good guy. Maybe you should read books like, I read a New York Times letter to the editor. You should read books like, the case of Harry Dexter White, colon, still not proven. <laughs> so I guess the best they can appeal to is a book called still The, not the Case Against Harry Dexter White, Still Not 100%, Still Plausible Room for Doubt if you're like literally in his nuclear family. But that's that's kind of the uh, the degree to which history has made up his mind about this guy is that there's, there's not that much room for doubt anymore. And yet, uh, although we stayed on the gold standard until... I mean, a lot of this was predicated on the dollar being backed by gold. We stayed on it until Nixon. But the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank exist to this day. We are still living uh, on planet Harry Dexter White. And that concludes Harry Dexter White. Entry 1428.LK0817. Certificate number 25923 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and you have economic theories that disagree with mine or Ken's, please do not hesitate to not post them to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, you can see uh, our robot posts at Omnibus Project. And you can enjoy Ken's witticisms and my grouchicisms at, at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings. Are they, uh, are they uh, grouchicisms? Some of them. Some of my posts are grouchicisms. All not grouchicisms. All, all your posts are either crotchety or crochet-y. That's right. It's just whether or not there's a hyphen before the Y. Um, it's either knitwear or um, grumpiness. All my posts are belong to us. Uh, you can go hang out with me on Instagram where my grouchicism is, uh, less pronounced. Uh, you can email us, uh, if you have criticisms of the show or, uh, disagree with my assessment of politics, please write us at, um, uh, take a flying leap at <laughs> omnibus.ru. If but you, if, if you want to say nice I'm things, not are you? <laughs> if you want to email my Trotskyite Dad book club, <laughs> but if you like us and want to email us, it's theomnibusproject at gmail.com. We keep the two uh, mailboxes so we can read the criticisms first and, yeah, and more right. eagerly and assiduously because that's what really matters our, our desire to improve. We start in the morning reading the criticisms. Ken and I, you know, bow our heads. And if time allows, we then move on to the praise. To the praise. Um, Please join our Futurelings Facebook group if you uh, if you still allow Facebook into your life. Today, uh, people are posting pictures of coffee soup. Coffee soup. 
which is apparently when you put saltines in coffee. Hmm. And then you put, of course, now you know what I'm going to say. If you've got saltines in coffee, what would you do? You would put sugar and scrambled eggs on them. Whoa. Or at least that's what's going on in this horrifying picture. Boy, I didn't see that coming. We had some, we, uh, it's our, Thanksgiving was last week in our timeline. And uh, we had a couple kids over who were, uh, we had the the Mormon missionaries over. And they were, uh, I think both of them happened to be from Utah. Small world. So they're 20 years old? How yeah, old they're, they're just 20-year-old kids without a place to go on the holidays. And right. they were like, let's have these poor guys over. Did they? Were they wearing short sleeve button-down shirts? In November, yes. Did they have pocket protectors? <laughs> <laughs> we asked them, hey, what are, the, uh, what are the Thanksgiving foods you guys have in your families back home in uh, uh, Tremont and Utah or wherever they're from? Right. And this kid, this kid was like, oh, we don't eat anything that weird. Um, and I said, well, maybe you wouldn't know. And he said, well, we love... Um, we love cookie salad and Snickers salad. <laughs> but he said it like I also would be a fan of, of sure. both cookie salad oh, yeah. and Snickers we salad. We love cookie salad, just like normal Americans. Now tell me what cookie salad is. Well, you take, um, what are those Keebler cookies with the chocolate? I said fudge stripes? He said, yeah. You take fudge stripes and you put them in kind of a thing of uh, Cool Whip and fruit cocktail. And I was just... Your, your jaw hit I'm, the floor. I'm heaving on the inside. <laughs> and Snickers salad is apparently much the same thing. It's kind of a white salad, ambrosia salad kind of base, except then you put a slice up Snickers bars and drop them in. And I said, and this is a Thanksgiving dessert at your house? That's insane. He's like, no, 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 it's a salad. No, we we shape a turkey out of it. <laughs> 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 this is the salad course. And uh, I, I have since asked three other... Uh, Latter-day Saint missionaries of his uh-huh. generation, all from the Intermountain West, the food desert that is the Intermountain West, and all of them said, oh yeah, Snickers salad, delicious. And I think it's a prank. I think Snickers salad. I think the, the Wasatch Front must be pranking me. There's no way that's real. How have we not done an episode on the desserts of the Intermountain West? We will definitely have Jell-O Omnibus the coming up. The frontier. The Jell-O belt. <laughs> Anyway, please, um, so please don't send us coffee soup pictures or Snickers salad. No, pictures. if you want to send us Snickers salad, I don't think it will. I don't think it will travel. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you can send us just Snickers bars. Make sure they're fresh to uh, our PO box, which is five five seven four four Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. That's where um, you, you send your granddad's clothes, and I'll look incredible. Ken will not. Ken just wears regular clothes. I look incredible in regular clothes. Some of us are just lucky that way. And uh, and as we mentioned in every show, uh, we are extremely grateful to be supported by our fans here at uh, Omnibus on the Patreon crowdfunding site. Uh, we now have different tiers of support, uh, but there is extra bonus content available there for people who support us at any level. I uh, think... Uh Tens of thousands of people listen to the show, depending on where the metric is. It's Multiple tens. 30 to 50,000, depending on how soon after release they listen. We're grateful for the generosity of these supporters, uh, especially because it's it's kind of the, the, the tip of the iceberg. It's, a, mm. it's, it's a, a small fraction of our listeners that gives back. And I think there's room to grow that, frankly. If you're listening and you have often thought, I enjoy these informative... Uh, broadcasts from the early 21st century but i have not yet displayed that through a dollar-centric harry dexter white approved manner that's right through monetary policy through redistribution of wealth the dollar backed by gold or the australian dollar or the new zealand dollar or the british pound the 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 euro we accept euros 
Why not? Why not contribute? Why not uh, avail yourselves Pay of some, some of the remarkable uh, benefits and perks? Send us your bankors. Uh, I'll wear your I'll wear your grandpa's bankers. <laughs> I look incredible. Uh, it's true, and in fact, there was someone on the Facebook page the other day that was having a little bit of a, like an outburst about the fact that they didn't understand Patreon, and and the people there didn't. You know, they resisted the impulse to say "Okay, Boomer" as long as they could. But someone suggested if you want to contribute to Omnibus and you don't want to use Patreon, they give you the PO box. <laughs> Send them a check for a hundred dollars. <laughs> Just so, to be clear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we wouldn't wait. We wouldn't pay taxes on that either. No, that's right. Well, we've gotten cash in the mail, you and I. But we often we often remind our listeners: do not send us cash in the mail. It's gauche. I don't. Yeah, well, pff. apparently John wants you to send him I'll cash in the it. mail. Half of the Omnibus Project wishes. <laughs> Money would show up in his mailbox. Send me your granddad's silver coin collection. That's what no, you need. No, Send John no. your Just ingots. He needs a new doorstop for his new house. Ingots. Uh, so, yes. Anyway, thank you very much for your support. We appreciate it very much. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. How long will the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund survive? Who knows? We hope and pray that the catastrophe that so plagues our nightmares may never arrive, but if the worst comes soon, this very recording, like each of our recordings, may have been our final word, the final entry in the omnibus. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Omnibus.